Welcome to our 21st edition of Rising Tide. This is David Helvark, our co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello there. And today we're uh, talking to a friend of ours, an acoustician and a naturalist, Michael Stalker, who's the founding director of Ocean Conservation Research, which uh, seeks to understand the impacts of human-generated noise on the uh, natural marine wildlife and uh, use that understanding to inform ocean policy and uh, practices. So, Michael, I think this is something people don't think a lot about when they think about the ocean, which is how sound acts as the light of the ocean, how it allows all the ocean's creatures to uh, feed and breed and connect with each other. How'd you get to start thinking about this? Well, it started out uh, quite a while back. I am actually a musician by avocation, and I love the ocean. We spent a lot of time in the ocean. My, my dad was born in the ocean. Uh, we had boats, and so I, uh, and my mom would take me down to the beach and drop me in a tide pool and crack a novel, and she'd be done for the day. And what uh, so I really, that? Laguna, Little Laguna was a nice tide pooly beach. California. Uh, yeah, and Southern California was really great. So, yeah, that's kind of how I started. I wanted to be a marine biologist. Uh, at that time, Jacques Cousteau had his uh, misnomered uh, series called the uh, Monde du Silence, uh, the Silent Sea, Far From It. Um, and, uh, you know, when I was about seven years old, I went to an aquarium and they had, it was Morro Bay. It was a, a very humble little aquarium, but they had a hydrophone in one of the tanks and they had all these uh, um, bass in there. They were clorking and cracking and cricking away. <laughs> it was just like, whoa, I wanted to get, I wanted to get a hydrophone from my, my own aquarium, my home aquarium. And uh, so I kind of started it. But uh, when I was in um, high school, I was looking forward to my biology class, but my biology teacher was so tedious. I decided I was going to do music and, uh, I fell back into that and worked in the business for a while. Did that include a garage band? Oh, many. Oh, yeah. Tons. We, we, we had a little chicken shack with egg cartons nailed up on the walls, you know, for acoustic treatment. It was really a disaster. Um, but, yeah, we did a lot of that stuff. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, in 1990, uh, I was still interested in biology, although I didn't pursue that in school. The Navy was proposing this long-distance well, ATOC, acoustic tomography of ocean climate, they were going to be kicking noises across ocean basins and measuring things that way. And, and you know, it was a brilliant idea from a physical stand, physical oceanography standpoint, from a biological standpoint, lousy idea. Tell us more about ATOC. Okay, so the idea is this. Uh, there is a direct correlation between how fast sound travels in the ocean and the density of the water. And the density of water is mediated by two things. It's mediated by uh, salinity and it's also mediated by pressure. There is a isothermic layer in the ocean called the SOFAR layer and it has been the same temperature since the ice age and so they can actually project the sound through it and if they see any perturbations in that they'll be able to determine whether or not there's density changes having to do with things like el nino or la nina or other types of current changes and be able to get a read like tomography kind of like sonograms except it's low frequency and um and it was an interesting idea so that's kind of the premise of it but 
you know, the hidden agenda, which nobody's really even spoke about much, is that if you can get a coherent signal across an ocean basin, you can use it to communicate. And at that time, in the early 90s, submarines were being revealed by, at that time, they had a, a, a low-frequency radio-frequency communication system to talk to submarines, and they had these long, like, two-kilometer-long antennas they would have to drag on top of the ocean. But if you had a magnetometer on a satellite, you could tell where all the submarines were. So they had to figure out how to communicate with submarines surreptitiously. And I think, although nobody's talking about it, that that ATOC also served as a, as a testing ground for that type of uh, communication system. And, and what got your interest in this? I mean, you were a musician, uh, you were doing acoustics for music. What got you engaged in the, the arrival of this ATOC project? Well, I knew that the the animals in the ocean use sound to get around because, you know, you get down a few hundred feet, it's dark. There's nothing down there except for bioluminescence. So the way most animals communicate in the ocean is through sound. They understand their surroundings, the proximity of threats, the, you know, location of, of conspecifics, you know, whether or not uh, there's turbulence coming your way or, or this type. There's a, there's a lot of components to this. And animals in the ocean have adapted amazing ways uh, to essentially hear their surroundings. And I was wise to that. And this first kind of idea of insonifying the ocean sounded like a really lousy idea. I mean, you know, at that time, we knew that the humpback whales were communicating with these really magnificent, long, detailed songs or legacy songs. So that was going to interfere with that. <laughs> And there's the famous songs of the humpback whale that kind of popularized this idea of, of natural sound in the ocean. First platinum album by Animal. <laughs> when was that? And I had that. Uh, 1972. Yeah, it was Roger Payne. And, he, and <laughs> yeah, he recorded these. It was a, the Bahamas uh, humpbacks were the, were the band. So, Michael, moving forward with um, recognizing that it's very important to have a, a somewhat quiet ocean minus you know, human-made noises, and, you know, we dealt with ATOC, and we were able to move that out of the sanctuary through many efforts. Um, tell us a little bit about what's happening now with ocean sounds and human-induced impacts around that topic. Well, the most pervasive sound, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere, is the sound of shipping. And international trade has increased uh, since 1960s, to the point where uh, the ocean is 10 times louder now than it was in 1970. And it's all shipping noise, this kind of uh, low frequency grumbling, thrashing noise. And that is interfering with animals' ability to be able to you know, sense things in their surroundings. We know that whales, for example, the, uh, the, the baleen whales have these very low frequency signals that they kick out, which you can hear two, 3,000 miles away. And, you know, they, they do that for a reason. It's not just being, uh, you know, audacious. They actually do that for navigation purposes, to communicate and what have you. Well, if we have this rise in the noise floor at that very frequency that these animals are using, it's going to narrow their ability to be able to hear what distances their sounds conferred to them as they evolved into the ocean, you know, ocean so, habitat. 
So it wasn't the first big controversy about ocean noise or anthropogenic, I should say, human-caused ocean noise, real around the Navy using these low-frequency uh, sonars that impacted those kind of whales in the Bahamas and elsewhere. I mean, there have been several books like Whale Wars written about the conflict between the Navy and its impacts on whales and other marine mammals. Well, the ATOC thing proved a point. We could get coherent sounds across uh, ocean basins that had actually been proven before, but we were able to run, uh, they were able to run a program to be able to uh, con confirm that. Then the Navy decided they wanted to use these low frequency sounds to find uh, submarines, uh, basically through it's, it's, you know, same type of thing. It's just long wavelength, uh, low frequency signals that when they bounce back to the boats, they can determine if there's something moving within the field of the sound. That was uh, in 1999 to 2000. In the midst of the hearings on that low frequency active sonar, there was a tragedy that happened in the Bahamas where they were using mid frequency sonar, the Navy was, and in the midst of this exercise, 17 beak whales and one minke whale stranded uh, all over in this area where they were doing these exercises. And Ken Balcom was down there. He was studying these beaked whales. They're very uh, interesting animals. They spend about 2% of their life close to the surface of the water, and the rest are down thousands of feet at, at certain points. So he had been studying these whales. He was fast enough to cut, cut a couple of heads off of these animals and freeze them and send them off to the lab where they found a number of things that were alarming. One of them was that their hearing organs were completely emulsified and the rest of their organs, their blood was, was full of uh, bubbles, like uh, some, something akin to the bends, you know, where they essentially you get these bubbles that uh, emulsify their blood. And divers or others rise up too suddenly in the water column. Right. And, and that, uh, so the speculation, there was a lot of speculation on that, but I think the narrative, which seems to be the most popular right now, is that uh, these animals were down really deep. They were foraging down there. All of a sudden, this Navy sonar comes in, this mid-frequency sonar, pokes their ears out with uh, ice picks because it's a horrible sound. In fact, I'll play a little bit of this. Well, that they were uh, completely startled. Uh, having been deafened immediately, and they rose to the surface to get air because that's really the first, you know, they're air-breathing animals. So they rose to the surface. Typically, beak whales come up in stages. They decompress in stages. And the thought was these animals were so shocked that they just headed to the surface as fast as they could. And that was the cause of their death. Not so much that the sonar specifically killed them, but it's... It, set them up for a, an unpleasant, untimely death. And so this led to years of protest and litigation about the Navy use of these, these sonars? Well, the noise issue came up on everybody's sonar. And uh, I was at that time, I had been writing papers, white papers and, and things, some peer-reviewed stuff uh, for various organizations like uh, Earth Island and World Wildlife. And uh, I think I did one for NRDC talking about this stuff because it was starting to come up in the, you know, in the public sphere. And uh, I became a science advisor for a small nonprofit that was good at organizing, but they didn't have necessarily uh, the scientific data. And so I was working with them for a number of years 
until I founded uh, Ocean Conservation Research. You wanted to look at the whole issue of, of human noise in the ocean. Yeah, I mean, it's so the shipping noise is part of it, but we're, we're introducing all kinds of other noises, not just from, from transportation, but we are underwater communication systems, seal bombs. I mean, that, there's an amazing amount of seal bombs that, that go off, I mean, thousands sometimes a day in the Monterey Bay Sanctuary. You know, this is a huge problem. This is. Can you clarify and, what a seal bomb is for those listeners? Yeah, a seal bomb is. Fishermen use them when they have seals that are predating on their on their catch, whether it's line catch or or a net catch. They can throw these. They're like little M80s in the water, and they explode, and this and it, they annoy the seals, and hopefully scare the seals away. I founded uh, Ocean Conservation Research in 2007, uh, largely because the organization that I was working with wasn't moving fast enough in terms of the science and the policy work. So I wanted to roll up my sleeves and really grab it uh, by the horns, so to speak, mixed metaphors, but I wanted to get into, you know, into this a lot deeper. So I started going to Washington, D.C. on a more regular basis. I started going to offshore uh, oil technologies conferences that... That's, you know, there's an underwater industry that is incredibly noisy. You know, they have these, uh, the, the deep water horizon disaster. I mean, I wish somebody had stuck a hydrophone in the water and recorded that because it would have been amazing. But those offshore rigs don't just, you know, they don't stick a, a, a straw in the, in the ground and suck up oil. They have seafloor processing. So they have compressors and multi-phase pumps and, and all this stuff is roaring away. And that's, you know, that's yet another, under, you know, underwater industry. And now they're starting to really get into this idea of, of mining, strip mining the ocean. And that's going to be another, aside from other problems with silt and what have you, a noise source. I guess the biggest controversy about ocean noise since the Navy sonars has been the idea of oil exploration ships. And, and I don't know if you've been involved in that. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, you have to find the oil. And so one of the ways they do that is they do have these uh, seismic survey ships and they kick off these explosions every 10 to 15 seconds around the clock. And it can sound like this. And we were just up in the Cook Inlet uh, last fall. We put some instruments down uh, to measure the noise of these things. They were doing a survey in the Cook Inlet. It was a relatively small array, uh, but it was loud. And uh, we're working on the data right now in terms of how it scared uh, the whales and uh, most of the whales away from the area. Michael, has there been any data on what these impacts are? We know they're very loud. We know it disturbs them. It impacts migration, feeding, mating. Um, but is there any kind of quantifiable evidence about what is actually happening due to sound? Well, there's a number of really telling studies, but I think one of the more, it's a really telling, it, and, and it was kind of an opportunity that happened. Uh, Susan Parks was recording the sounds of the North Atlantic right whale up in the Bay of Fundy area. At the same time, this woman, uh, Rosalind Rowan, was measuring the cortisol levels in their feces. And so they have essentially 
the situation where they know how stressed out the cortisol is a proxy for stress and they know how stressed out these animals are right after the 9-11 twin towers disaster happened they shut down shipping pretty much worldwide for about a week or so and when they did that the noise levels went down another six to eight db twice maybe three times uh, you know less volume if you will and the cortisol levels immediately dropped in, you know, exactly the same amount, you know, at the same time. And then when the noises started up again, the cortisol levels started rising. So there, it was a really indisputable direct correlation between shipping noise and the stress of these animals. It's a qualitative thing. You know, I mean, I live in the, I live in the country and when the airplanes were all grounded due to this COVID thing, the birds were having a riot. I mean, the, the Don Chorus was waking me up. It was so loud. Well, is that a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And the same in the ocean. You know, the, the sound in the Arctic, which is stunningly gorgeous. And I'll play a little bit of this. Uh, this is Arctic sounds off of Barrow, Alaska, off the lead ice in Barrow, Alaska in April. you can hear there are all kinds of uh, ring seals bearded seals and bowheaded whales and they're just this breeding season so they're just having a party and there's no ships up there well we're going to start putting ships up there as the ice melts back and that's going to change their whole habitat you had talked about one good experiment on marine mammal stress was after 9-11 the shipping up in canada that went away we've had this year-long experiment unintended with the covid pandemic i just read an article where the whales are more active up in glacier bay because the uh tour ships have gone away. Um, are, are there any experiments today looking at uh, a less noisy ocean and how it's impacting wildlife? The papers are pretty much in review right now. And I think what people, some people are waiting for is for it to return to quote unquote normal and then do some comparative, you know, have a baseline where it's quieter and then get back to, to noise again. But the papers, some are in review, uh, but there's going to be a whole rash of papers coming out on the impact of noise on marine habitat. What are some of the solutions? I mean, it's, as you say, uh, shipping has increased. Obviously, we don't need to be searching for oil because of climate change. We need to be getting off oil. But even offshore wind turbines will be noisy. Our ports are very active. The Navy continues to operate its sonars. How do we find solutions for uh um, the human noise we're putting into the ocean? Well, I mean, fortunately, the IMO, International Maritime Organization, is actually concerned about this, but there's also a win-win there because noise is a, also a proxy for inefficiency. So if they can come up with the more efficient ways of driving their ships around, it'll be you know less fuel consumptive and less noise. So it's that's a good thing. And the IMO is what oversees the whole global commercial fishing, I mean, shipping fleet. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And so they're, they're on board. I am concerned because increasingly the, well, the Navy's got some proposals out, the um, Neptune and Janus programs where they want to have underwater GPS so that they can run autonomous vessels anywhere in the world and they know where they are. Well, just doing the math on that, that signal will probably be between eight and 12 kilohertz. And that means we could hear it just to, you know, let you know that it might cause some human concern, but you can hear this in the hull of your boat. You hear this like, you know, jingling sound, you know, beautiful moonlit night on a, on a, on a smooth bay. And you're going to hear this 
coming through the hull of your boat. You know, so it's going to give people a taste of what animals are going to have to suffer if, in fact, they do try to get this thing going. Hopefully, this next administration is going to get you know read the tea leaves on fossil fuel, and we're not going to have to worry about offshore seismic surveys after a certain point. But the underwater communication stuff, I mean, we really have to keep our our you know shoulder to that because people still don't think it's problematic. You know, they don't see animals as, as one of my Navy colleagues said, jumping out of the water to get away from the noise. Well, no, they don't. I mean, but when you have, you know, if your refrigerator's uh, compressor is broken and it's going all night long, it, it's annoying. You know, you, it, it's animals are sentient and, you know, they're not just behavior, you know, behaviors in a bag of protein. You know, they actually think, too. They, they, they get bothered by stuff. Well, it's great that your organization and you have been really bringing light to this issue of underwater sound. You know, everything from ATOC to everything you're talking about, shipping, oil exploration. And I'm hoping that more and more people start to recognize the importance of nature sounds, both in the air and in the water, and that we can maybe begin to address it on a more comprehensive level um, during this next administration. So I'm looking forward to your continued ideas as we you know, bring this to light and start thinking about, you know, wow, what a noisy environment that ocean is and how nice would it be if we were to let the animals have their, their habitat and their space. Who are among your favorite marine animals to listen in on? Oh, the ice seals. Just, they, they sound like out of space. I mean, I, uh, it's dark in the Arctic and Antarctic certain times of the year and these animals have these stunning sounds. And I mean, I'll just play one of them here. If people are interested in your trips to uh, Baja to visit with the whales or just want to learn more about the whole OCR project, uh, how do they get in touch with you? Well, OCR.org is easy to remember. Um, that has pretty much all the information about and how to contact us. And of course, uh, there's a lot of papers and a lot of uh, videos. We're putting a video series together on animal communication right now. Daniela, who's our communications media director, is doing an excellent job on this stuff. So we'll have that stuff come up. You can sign up for the newsletter. The newsletter comes out once or twice, sometimes three times a month. We have also ocean-noise.com. And that is uh, a blog site that talks about what we've been doing for the past, since 2007. Thank you, Michael. And uh, take us out with some wonderful animal sounds. Okay. This is some reef sound. This will be nice. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with host David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify.
Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.